so last Sunday, we celebrated resurrect, the resurrection of Jesus on Easter Sunday. And I don't know about you, but like every year, it seems like something that, that should just go on longer than it does. Like, doesn't it seem like it should go on longer than just one Sunday? We spend the whole Lent season preparing for Good Friday and then for Easter Sunday. And then it's over in like one day. And I don't know if you guys are familiar, N.T. Wright, he's like probably my favorite theologian, but uh, he's a bishop in the Anglican Church and uh, one of the top New Testament scholars in the world. And he says this about Easter. I want to read this to you, what he says about Easter. He says, we should make Easter a 40-day celebration. If Lent is that long, Easter should be at least that long, all the way to the Ascension. We should meet regularly for Easter parties. We should drink champagne at breakfast. We should renew baptismal vows with splashing water all over the place. And we should sing and dance and blow trumpets and put out banners in the streets. And we should invite the homeless people to parties and we should go around town doing random acts of generosity and celebration. We should be doing things which would make our sober and serious neighbors say, what is the meaning of this outrageous party? And I think, I I don't know about you, but I feel like it, it captures that. Like, like, it sort of begs for more than we traditionally give it. I think we don't really give it enough thought. You know, we, we think of it in, in part as like, okay, this is, this is one stage in the church calendar. And so we go right past it and we go skip right on along. We do Easter on Sunday morning, uh, on Easter Sunday, and then we skip right along to go and make disciples and Ascension and Pentecost. And I think when we look at the scriptures, we have this period of time between the, when the tomb is found empty and when Jesus issues this great commission and ascends. Like there's a period of time. And today I want to consider another account in that time period. And if you have a Bible handy, you can turn to, to John chapter 20. And we're going to begin in verse 19. I'll give you just a second. John chapter 20. I would just put it on the screen, but, uh, you know. That's more moving parts than I have available to me at the moment. John chapter 20, beginning in verse 19. And here's what we read. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders. And I just want to pause right there. Like I'm stopping like right in the middle of this verse. But I want to pause here. And I want you to consider what this room was like. This meeting happened on the same day that the tomb was found empty. When we look at the account of this meeting in Luke, we find out it's not just the remaining disciples, but there's other people in the room who are followers of Jesus too. And these folks are like far from like the celebration that we make out of Easter. I mean, can you imagine the, just the cocktail of emotions that were probably happening in that room. I mean, if you just think about it, this is like 12, 14, maybe 16 hours after they find the tomb empty. I mean, you have Mary and, and the two guys along the road uh, to Emmaus who claim to have seen Jesus, and they're there. You have Mary, Peter, and John who saw the empty tomb sitting there. You have all these other people sitting there who had only heard these reports and nobody in the room had any expectation that resurrection was a reality. I mean, only two days before they watched him get crucified. I mean, they, they knew he was dead. 
So there's probably some sadness in the room. Probably the Jews would finish the job by killing them if they didn't flee. So there's fear for their own lives. But at the same time, if Jesus is actually alive, what does this mean for the whole plan we were, we were on? What does this mean for what we are actually up to? And then there's this sort of suspicion, right? Because, like, I don't know about you, but like, do I trust that my fellow disciples have not just lost their minds or given over to wishful thinking? Like, how much do I trust their sanity? These guys who've said that they, they've seen Jesus alive. I mean, what was it like to be in this meeting? Can you, can you capture that? What was it like? I mean, what was even the purpose of the meeting? Who called the meeting? Like, why are we getting together? Like, we should be like, running for our lives. And there's at least enough fear in the room that they're inside with the doors locked. I mean, maybe it makes good sense to lock the doors. I mean, maybe the fear is founded, right? There are at least two obvious reasons that they should fear. First of all, if the Jewish leaders are putting down this false Messiah on Friday, then they would have taken the Sabbath day off and, but then resume the hunt for the rest of the revolution, right? So there's this legitimate fear that the Jewish leaders were going to finish the job. And the second reason would be if the Jewish leaders were aware of the story that had been circulating about the disciples stealing the body. You know, if you read in Matthew, the, the, the soldiers who were guarding the tomb, they knew the tomb was empty. And Matthew says they were paid to spread the rumor that the disciples stole the body. So if the Jewish leaders knew then perhaps this would provoke them to go stamp out the rest of the followers of Jesus on Resurrection Sunday. I mean, maybe the fear is founded. They've got the doors locked. There's fear for their lives. Can you capture the mix of emotions that the disciples were feeling? Sadness, suspicion, fear, confusion, anger, mistrust, all that with a touch of hope? This is the sense among the, follower, the followers of Jesus on the first Resurrection Sunday. These are all things that probably everyone here has experienced at one time or another. And what you need to know is that the reality of the resurrection doesn't wait until you're ready. When you're able to get all nice and dressed up and put on your happy face and show up to church, it doesn't wait for that. The power of the resurrection happens in the midst of real life, with real life problems. It invades quarantine. It invades the death of loved ones. It invades, it invades your strained marital relationships or your strained friendships. It, it, it invades the loss of a job or the sickness you're going through. It invades the confusion about your future, the regrets about your past, the new baby, the new job the wreck of your retirement. Some of us have had retirement just wrecked. The resurrection shows up not into pristine, put-together worlds, but into the world and places and head spaces that we find ourselves every day. This is everyday reality. And that's what happened the first day. Do you feel that? Like, can you, before we move on in this passage, can you feel that? That sense of being in the room, and there's just this cocktail of emotion. If we pick it up right where we left off, verse 19. It says, on the evening that the first day of the week, 
when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I'm sorry, after he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I'm sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. So in the midst of all that's happening, all this chaos, all this stuff, Jesus just shows up. I mean, no knock on the door. It just, he just appears. And of course, when you put it all together, this, of course, has to be a ghost, right? It has to be a ghost or something. I mean, I can imagine everyone in the room looking at Jesus, and then, you know, as you would, looking at Jesus, and then looking at the guy next to you, like, is he seeing this too? Is, is this real, or have I lost my mind? Like, I'm not really sure what's happening. And the first thing that Jesus does is speak peace into the situation. Into all the turmoil, Jesus says, peace. And friends, this is what Jesus will do in your life. In fact, this is one of the ways that you can discern the voice of the Lord in your life. He brings peace. When you hear something that drives anxiety and frenzy and impulsivity and fear, that's not the voice of Jesus. When Jesus speaks into your life, his word is peace. Listen, do you want to grow as a disciple? I think most of us are here on a Sunday on Zoom because we want to grow as a disciple. If you want to grow as a disciple, Wait and listen for the word of peace that Jesus speaks. Don't move into every opportunity that you hear. Jesus has a word to speak to you that brings peace. As this whole coronavirus thing has spooled up, I've watched people everywhere so stirred by their own anxieties into things that Jesus has not spoken to them personally. And as a personal confession, I mean, just to, to all of you, I've done this myself. All of a sudden, we're locked into our houses with, without the ways that we normally cope with life, right? Like you, you miss all the things that you normally drown out with. I'm going to work. I'm going to do these other things that I can drown out the anxiety and the fear and the insecurity that normally shows up in my life. Now we're locked into a house and our fears and our insecurities and our doubts begin to speak to us, right? So we create these things that we try to do to deal with the voices inside of us that are so loud. And they may not even be bad things, right? They may not even be bad things. They may be really good things. But they're not the things Jesus has spoken. The things that bring us peace. I mean, I know now it's not a, a normal time, but as you consider your life right now, you may be able to become aware of places in your life 
where you're doing things that Jesus has not asked you to do. For some of you, this will be evident because of the anxiety that shows up in you whenever you can't do them, right? You're locked in your house and the things that you are doing that God hasn't asked you to do, you can't get to. And so it creates all kinds of inner anxiety for you. But I want you to consider it right now. Like, I want you to think about it. We're in a time when everybody gets a little bit of a reset, right? Everybody gets a little bit of a, of a do-over. Everybody gets a fresh start. Even if you're working right now, everything about the world is different. Collectively, the whole world is like held its breath. Like we've, we've, we've all taken a collective pause. And I want you to understand that this could be a gift for you. I want you to consider your life and see if there are things that you are doing that are making you frantic in your life that Jesus has not asked you to do. I mean, seriously, think about it for a minute. I mean, I can sit here and look at you and make you feel uncomfortable. I don't intend to do that. But I want you to think about it for a minute. My challenge is that you would think about it more than just right now, but that you would take a posture before the Lord in this time of quarantine of spreading out all the things that you do on a table and asking him which things don't belong. I mean, allow God to speak to you personally about the things that you hold on to. Maybe he wants to address a fear that you have that causes you to do the thing that you do. A lot of times we hold on to things not because we need to do them, but because they ease some fear or anxiety or they, they help us cope with some wound. And right now, I want to encourage you to put that on the table and invite Jesus to speak to you about that. I mean, maybe he wants to heal the wound that makes you overfunction and do all the things that he hasn't asked you to do. I mean, don't take this lightly. Like this, this time is critical if you want to emerge from this time as someone who lives into the peace that Jesus offers. Because in a few weeks or a few months, however long it takes for them to open everything back up, everything's going to spool back up again. And if you have not made a conscious decision with the Lord about the things you're going to do and pick up again, you'll find yourself doing everything and you'll find yourself lacking peace. The words Jesus speaks bring peace. I mean, that's what it did. he did for the disciples that day. He spoke peace. But Jesus went further. He showed them the identifying marks of his crucifixion. Luke records in his gospel that they were stunned and stood in disbelief at the sight of his wounds. They still didn't believe completely. They were surprised. And so he asked them in Luke's account for something to eat. So they gave him some fish to eat. Why? To prove that he's not a ghost? Probably. I mean, can you, can you imagine what it would have been? I mean, just think about it for a second. You know, which one of you standing around the table, staring at this guy that may be Jesus and may not be. Can you imagine what it would have been like to be the guy that's handing Jesus the fish to eat? I mean, 
That would have been crazy. And it must have been at this point when Jesus eats this fish that they begin to decide, Jesus must be truly alive. I don't understand it. Even if it doesn't make sense to us, they could begin to get excited even though they didn't understand. But then there would be angst that would come with it. Over the past, I mean, just think about it. Over the past three days, we've watched the Jews get livid. A mob convinced a Roman, Roman ruler to sentence Jesus to die, and the same people crucify him. Now he's alive. And is all this going to make things happen again, only worse? Are we going to see this happen, just the same thing again? Like, now they're going to make sure to kill us all? Yay, Jesus is alive, but now what? And so again, in the passage, Jesus speaks peace. But this time he goes further. Verse 22. Verse 22 says that he breathed on them. He breathed on them. And said, receive the Holy Spirit. This word for breathe comes with special significance. It's the same word used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament in two places. The first place is Genesis 2, 7, where right after God made Adam, God made man, he breathed the, light, the, he breathed the breath of life into Adam, and then Adam became a living being. The second time it shows up in the Old Testament is in Ezekiel 37, where God sets Ezekiel. You guys, maybe you remember the whole dry bones, dry bones. You can sing the song if you want, right? But like the whole Ezekiel 37 thing, where God sets Ezekiel in this valley of dry bones. And he says to Ezekiel, can these bones live? And of course, Ezekiel's like, I don't have any idea. And God tells Ezekiel, prophesy to the bones. And so he does it, and the bones come together, but there's no breath in them. Then God tells Ezekiel to command the breath of life to fill the bones. And he says that when the breath entered them, they were alive. So catch what John is saying here in the gospel. John, as he's been doing throughout the book, says that Jesus is like the creation story, except it's a new creation story. God is again breathing true life into humans, and Jesus tells them to receive the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the breath of life that animates humanity in the new creation. It's the breath of life. Jesus says, as the Father sent me. How does Jesus send? How does God send Jesus? How does the Father send Jesus? Well, he was filled with the Holy Spirit. He was completely dependent on God's direction. He only did what God gave him to do. Every miraculous thing that he did was by the power of the Holy Spirit. As the Father sent me, so I send you. How does Jesus send the disciples? How does he send us? Filled with the Holy Spirit. We are to be completely dependent on God's direction and only do what we see God inviting us into. Every miraculous thing Jesus did, we do by the power of the Holy Spirit. Do you see this? If you don't understand this, if you don't capture this, then when you get to verse 23, I'll read it again just because it's weird. I can't tell you how many times I've wrestled with this verse. 
verse 23, Jesus says, if you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. That seems like a ridiculous amount of power to give humanity. And every commentator you read, if you read commentaries like me as a nerd, every commentary that you read, commentators don't know what to do with this verse. But if you don't pair those things together, that we are full of the Holy Spirit, that we move in lockstep with what the Spirit of God is doing. If the only thing we do is what God is doing, you'll get all kinds of weird interpretations about what you're able to do with sin. Right? It comes with a whole bunch of problems. But if you understand what Jesus calls us to do is to live in lockstep with the Spirit, then verse 23 makes perfect sense. The forgiveness the cross made possible is available to every human being. And insofar as you are led by the Spirit, you are able to make that forgiveness available. It's not a function of being a pastor or being a priest. Don't forget, there were plenty of other ordinary believers in the room when Jesus made this. This is what it is to be a follower of Jesus who has the Holy Spirit living inside you. Remember, Jesus said this to everybody. This means that as you press in to being the chaplain of your contact list, one of the roles, your roles in this, in this way of being is to make the forgiveness available to those you reach out to. You can say things like this. You can say, friend, I know you're struggling with regret because of what you've done in your life. And I know that this time of quarantine really kind of puts a spotlight on it. I know because you just don't have time but to just think about this thing. But here's the good news. Jesus died for sin and he died for your sin. And if you turn to Jesus and put your trust in him, you can experience the healing and freedom of that forgiveness. This is what it is to be resurrection people. We are people who move in the peace of Jesus. We are people who move in step with the spirit. We're people who extend the forgiveness of the Father. 